centuries ago when missionaries were amongst what they would have called the barbaric tribes of Western Europe and began to convert whole nations, it is said that baptisms of thousands of people at one time was a common occurrence. One of the things the missionaries found was that many of those barbarians insisted on keeping their right hand out of the baptismal water when they were plunged beneath the surface. They were willing to become Christian in every aspect except one. They wanted their strong right arm left free to kill the enemies and use as they please. In hearing that story, we would, or could, pinpoint certain aspects that are fundamentally wrong with the view of baptism, at least portrayed by that story. But the very fact that it is a story at all tells us something important about our relationship with God through Christ. In hearing that story, we could look at a number of things, but ultimately it becomes an illustration because upon hearing it, it is most, most of us would at least recognize there is a fundamental flaw in it. That flaw is this, that God does not ask for partial dedication. He demands our complete devotion. Baptism is a picture of one's complete identification and complete submission to the Lordship of Christ. This morning we have the privilege of diving into scripture and examining this Lord's first call of obedience. But we do so soberly to understand the significance and the seriousness of baptism allowing ourselves to see it indeed as a sacrament that the Lord has meant for his glory and for our good. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. And for those of you using the Bibles in front of you, you can find today's text on page 758. And I want to bring to you a message that I've just titled, For His Glory, The Significance of Public Profession. I will not be expounding upon the text in Matthew 3 this morning, but instead we will be looking at a number of various texts. And Matthew 3 provides a framework for us to understand the meaning, the means, the measure, and the magnificence of baptism. And so I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the shaft will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from his heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You may be seated. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is at this point that Jesus is consecrated for the Lord's purpose and embarks on a ministry that has been purposed for him. It is at this moment that sets the direction of Jesus' life towards the cross. It begins here by Jesus identifying himself with sinners, and it will end at the cross where Jesus then pays the penalty for sinners. Adding further intrigue is the fact that Jesus' ministry begins with his very own baptism and draws to a close with a declaration for the church to baptize disciples. Because the church is his body, it is after all called the body of Christ, it is Christ that is authoritative over the church. It is Christ who gets to dictate the function and the fellowship of the church. It is Christ who gets to decide belief and behavior of the church. And so we look upon the holy sacrament of baptism, and we see it as a decree from Jesus Christ to those who will represent Christ when he is no longer physically present on earth. We look to him then to show us its authority and its activity. And we come this morning and we begin to learn four things about baptism. I want you to note first the meaning of baptism. The meaning of baptism. Of the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 69 reads this. How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross that benefits you. And then in asking that, it gives the following answer. In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul. That is all my sins. At Jesus' own baptism in Matthew 3 that we just read, 
there emerges this discussion between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. And it is there that John attempts to prevent Jesus' baptism. You'll note earlier in that same chapter that John attempts to resist baptizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well. Acts chapter 19, verse 4, says John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him. And so it's on that note that John resisted baptizing those spiritual leaders, those Pharisees and those Sadducees, because they were unrepentant. They were not seeing their need for forgiveness. But he resists Jesus' baptism, kind of for a similar reason. Jesus also was unrepentant. The difference was Jesus had nothing to repent of. He was without sin. So why does Jesus need to be baptized at all? He tells us in Matthew 3.15. He responds to John and says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John, consented. This is to fulfill the righteousness of God, it says. How is the righteousness of God fulfilled? Only two other times does Jesus speak of baptism. And in both cases, it is in reference to his death. Example is Luke 12, 50. He's anticipating his own crucifixion and he says... I have a baptism to be baptized with, or I have a baptism to undergo. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In this way, Jesus connects baptism with his death, burial, and resurrection that is to come. It was on the cross where Jesus's, or where God's requirements for righteousness were fully fulfilled. And so was that baptism then that Jesus, though he was sinless himself, identifies with sinners whose greatest need is to be made righteous, to be free from sin. Jesus first identifies with sinners in preparation of becoming a sacrifice for sinners. By this example, baptism becomes one of two sacraments that he institutes, the other being the Lord's Supper. That Heidelberg Catechism question that I just read to you, it describes it as an act that signifies and seals the sacrifice of Christ as a benefit to the believer. Baptism doesn't save a person. Baptism doesn't make a person more holy. Baptism doesn't prevent a person from sinning further. And baptism doesn't include or exclude someone's entrance into heaven. So what is the significance of baptism then? Ultimately, it acts as a visual seal of the Lord's promise of righteousness. Joel Beakey describes it as a seal of the truth of the gospel. It does nothing to add to the content. It just adds a visual guarantee. Sometimes when I write letters, I, I use a wax seal to seal them. That seal does not change the content of the letter. It does not change anything that has been written. It only acts as a visual guarantee that that letter is genuine and that that letter is mine. In the same way, baptism seals the believer. 
just to outwardly express that that person belongs to the Lord. This is the meaning of baptism. This truth brings a seriousness to baptism. It makes it a crucial aspect of the Christian life. In fact, it is so critical then that Jesus includes it in his great commission and says, go make disciples, and in doing so, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The body of Christ is under the command of baptism, both individually and institutionally. Individually, every member of Christ's body is those that would at least call themselves a disciple of Christ are called upon to be baptized institutionally. The body of Christ, the church, as a corporate group, is under the, the call to orchestrate the baptism of others, to shepherd those people towards obedience for the glory of God. This is the meaning of baptism. I want you to note second, the means of baptism, the means of baptism. There are a variety of views about the means or the method of baptism. There are some who subscribe to the idea of pouring with the notion that it symbolizes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Others follow the notion of sprinkling based on the idea of sprinkling the mercy seat with the blood on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. However, there are others like our church that practice baptism in the form of immersion. This practice comes from the significance of the Greek word used for baptism and for baptize. At a basic level, it means to immerse, coming from the early Greek usage when it was used to mean to dip, like when somebody was dyeing a piece of cloth. To dye a cloth, after that dye was all mixed together and was ready, the cloth was then dipped in and immersed into the dye and then raised up. In one sense, this word is also associated with the cleansing or purification of a person. In the New Testament, we see this in cases like John chapter 9, when Jesus tells the blind man after he's healed him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is associated with the entering of that pool of water. It's important to note that nowhere in the New Testament does the Greek word rantizo, which means to sprinkle, appear. To add further weight to the argument for immersion, never is baptism a passive act, meaning never do you see water placed on a person. It's always an active moment where a person is going into the water. This is evidenced by the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip in Acts 8.38 when they went down into the water. Even Jesus' baptism signifies this in Matthew 3.16. When it says that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And so it's for this reason that we as a church subscribe to immersion as a means of baptism. I want you to consider third then, the measure of baptism. The measure of baptism. In preparation of baptism, I generally meet with those interested and teach about the significance of baptism. And one of the things we discuss is why some people aren't baptized. And generally, it's one of five reasons. For some, it's just that they're unregenerate, meaning they're not believers despite the fact that they may profess to be. Others, they're just in defiance. They're simply rebelling against this command. 
There are others that are just indifferent. They're not against baptism. They just don't recognize the importance and see it as a priority, and so they're indifferent towards it. For others, it's a matter of pride. In some cases, they've just gone so long without being baptized, it's almost a source of embarrassment to go about it now. And then finally, it's, sometimes it's just ignorance. Whether they've been incorrectly taught, insufficiently taught, or not taught at all, they just don't understand the seriousness of baptism. I agree with John MacArthur when he assesses that there is a paradox within the church in which there are many baptized unbelievers and many, baptized, many unbaptized believers. There are many baptized unbelievers and many unbaptized believers. The importance or the significance of baptism is conveyed by three acts, and they define what baptism is. First, baptism is an act of public obedience. At the most fundamental level, to be baptized was a command of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a command that he himself exemplified. It is the most basic of his commands. And Peter even proclaims it in Acts 2.38, saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice how the Ethiopian eunuch, again, in Acts 8, exemplifies this. Immediately as they're going along, desiring to be baptized in an act of obedience. It's for this reason that there are so many churches that hold to the idea that church membership is for those who have been baptized. Because if a person is unwilling or cannot obey this initial command after conversion... How can they be willing to follow Christ in the more difficult ways? Baptism, then, is an act of public obedience. It's also an act of public profession. And calling on those who would follow Christ to repent and be baptized. Peter, in that verse in Acts 2, is not asking something small. To be baptized is to declare in a very public way, I trust the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. Think about, by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, what has happened? When, when Peter makes that statement, what have they just gone through? Christ has now ascended to heaven. But before that, he was resurrected. And why was he resurrected? Because he had just been crucified. He'd been rejected by the very ones who needed him. If they rejected the Messiah, it was likely that they would reject the followers of the Messiah as well. So to now be baptized and profess Christ as Lord and Savior, it came at a high cost for them because a public profession risks public rebuke. Yet one who truly believes in Christ, they cannot hide their loyalty to Christ. Baptism is an act of public profession. Finally, baptism is an act of public identification. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Baptism identifies a believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then it expresses a willingness to follow Christ at whatever the cost may be. We began by looking at Christ's baptism as an identification with us as sinners. But now we come full circle and we see that baptism is now our identification with Christ. There's something critical about these acts, about obedience and profession and identification. In these acts, the believer is publicly declaring an allegiance to Christ and in doing so invites public scrutiny on behalf of Christ. For example, I myself am being baptized, have said to others then, I am a follower of Christ. As a result of that statement, when I don't act like a follower of Christ, fellow believers now have the authority to hold me accountable. They can say, I watched you declare yourself a follower of Christ, and yet in whatever situation you did not act that way. Baptism becomes an act of surrender and submission, allowing God to hold us accountable through the body of Christ for the glory of God and for the good of his people. I want you to note fourth, the magnificence of baptism. The magnificence of baptism. Baptism may be a one-time event, but it is an ongoing reminder of God's call to put off sin, while also reminding us of his ongoing forgiveness when we do sin. Romans 6 captures this beautifully, and I'd love to read the whole chapter for you this morning, but I want to focus on verses 3 through 8 just for the sake of time. Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, we hear the following. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if, you have, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Notice how verse 3 began. Death. By the time we get to verse 8, it concludes with life. Baptism signifies a death of self and a new life in Christ. It is the taking off of those soiled garments and being washed and prepared to put on the garments of Christ. Those white robes in Revelation much like the one who has come home from a day mired in the sweat and grime. And so they must wash and put on clean clothes. Baptism pictures a washing of all filthiness and putting on the white garments of heaven. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3.27. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the magnificence of baptism. It pictures the death, our death, burial and resurrection, but with Christ. And therefore it reminds us, it convicts us, and it assures us of our salvation. Question 70 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the next one after the one I read to you earlier, gives a magnificent description of this. It asked, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? And then it gives an answer. To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace. Because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Here are some of those words again. Receive forgiveness through grace. Renewed by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified to be members of Christ. And dead to sin to lead a holy life. That's a powerful description. Each of those words conveys something very significant about baptism. That magnificence is underscored by the fact, by the reality that baptism is a Trinitarian experience. And what I mean by that is that at Christ's baptism, each member of the Trinity was present, Father, Son, and Spirit. And now we're told when we baptize to do so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. This is the magnificence of baptism. Baptism, then, is an act of public surrender to the Lord. It is the act of a disciple who is willing to sacrifice his or her identity for the sake of Christ's identity, and it is a marvelous act. Romans 12, 2, it describes the will of God as good, acceptable, and perfect. Baptism is the Lord's commanded will, and by what it is, we can see that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. And by willingly submitting to God in baptism, a believer surrenders his life to the Lord in a process that glorifies the Lord. For the one who has been baptized, whether it was 80 years ago, eight years ago, eight months ago, that one-time event that baptism continues today, and it continues because on, on one side of it, it is an ongoing reminder, an ongoing admonishment to us. And yet on the other side, it is an ongoing assurance to us. This is baptism. Let's pray. Our Father God, by your your perfect will, you have instituted the sacrament of baptism. By your perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom, it is a means to glorify you. And so, Father, you are pleased by this obedience to this call. 
And so, Father, I pray that in submitting to that, you would be magnified. Magnify yourself through our submission to you through it. And, Father, elevate yourself in our lives. Help us to draw nearer to you as we look upon the seriousness of this act, the sacrament that you've instituted. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. One of the great tasks of the church is to be a catalyst for obedience. When people have the desire to follow Christ and to follow him well, we as a church should do all that we can to support them, steward them, and shepherd them towards that. This morning, we as a church have the privilege of doing just that. And while doing that, we have the pleasure then of rejoicing at the work of the Lord. And this morning, we have four individuals who have expressed their desire and their intent to be baptized. And so that is what we're going to do this morning. <laughs> 